Our scripture reading today is from Luke um, chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Father, as I have been given words to share with your people, we ask that they might be useful to you, that your spirit might lead us and that might make receptive uh, the hearing of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The story is old and well-traveled and well-known, and yet there's often details that seem to get tucked away or forgotten or just glossed over or just the realities of what it could mean for us again today. And I hope that you have an experience like that where something familiar all of a sudden becomes something fresh. Well, as I did research on this, um, this text, this, this ancient hymn, this ancient poem that Mary uh, said in, in Luke chapter 1, it came up that this might possibly be considered one of the most dangerous passages in all of the Bible. Did you hear it? Did you hear the danger? Did you hear the threatening words? In Luke 1, 46-45, Mary's song of praise it's become known to us meant often as the Magnificat. That comes because of the, the English, uh, the Latin translation, magnif- oh, I'm going to try to read in Latin here for you all. Um, Magnificat anima me dominum. Dominium. Do we have anybody who speaks Latin in here? Good, so I did great then. <laughs> but the fact is, the very beginning, this, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And Magnificat is that reference to that word mag- magnify. My soul brings glory to the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. So this poem, this hymn, has been called the Magnificat. And by the way, in case you are going to play Magnificat trivia tomorrow at Christmas dinner, let me give you some trivia points so that you can win the contest. Anybody playing Magnificat trivia tomorrow? My daughter's raising her hand. No, we're not playing. Well, here's some trivia in case you do play it. The Magnificat has been part of the church's liturgy since the earliest of days. It's been passed around, it's been used, we found references in sermons and letters and and, uh, points, so it's a very well-traveled. 
For centuries, members of, of religious orders have recited these words or sung them daily in their prayers and worship. It wasn't just reserved for Advent. It wasn't just reserved for one or two days before Christmas. This has been part of the daily worship of Christians for centuries. It's, one of the lar- it's the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament. It's also the first Christmas carol that was ever composed. And parts of the Magnificat echo the song of Hannah found in 1 Samuel chapter 2. They're also reminiscent of the anguish that we find in many of the prophets' writings. And here's the last piece of trivia for you. In the past century, there are at least three separate governments who banned the public recitation of the Magnificat. Yeah, it's been banned by three separate uh, countries, uh, but more on that later. They feared that it was too subversive. So why? What's going on here? Well, first of all, we have to put ourselves in Mary's context. We have to put ourselves back in her shoes as to what was going on at this time. This is a great time of uncertainty for this young girl, Mary. Remember that she's born in the corner, the far-reached corner of the Roman Empire. She's not in a wealthy area. She's not in a powerful or influential area. Nor is she an influential person in an influential family. She's a poor peasant born of a normal family, and she's leading a normal peasant life. She's been betrothed. She has her husband picked out. They know that their wedding day is coming. And then everything changed. So you figure this is just all exciting. She has a mountaintop experience. The Holy Spirit meets with her and tells her that she's going to bring the Savior of the world. into. So all is good, right? Right? That's how teenage pregnancies are dealt with in first century Palestine, right? No, that's not. (laughs) This unwed teenage peasant girl was found pregnant. That usually results in devastating, devastating results for her, for her child, for her future. It could even result in her being cut off from family. It could result in her being cut off from her town. It could actually result in harm, physical harm, or even death. Matthew's gospel account informs us that Joseph, her betrothed, her fiancé, was planning to quietly call off their wedding. His discreetness was an attempt to protect Mary from the public humiliation and the social shame. According to Jewish law, Mary faced real threats of possibly even being stoned as an adulteress. So when we take a look at Mary's setting, Mary's situation, she is a young girl who's pregnant, who's in a precarious world, who, no matter what she says, uh, we weren't unfaithful, I swear. The Holy Spirit? Do you think people are going to believe that? She's in danger. Reverend Carolyn Sharp wrote, Do not envision Mary as the radiant woman peacefully composing the Magnificat. Instead, see her as a girl who sings defiantly to, to her God through her tears, fist clenched against an unknown future. Mary's courage Mary's courageous song of praise becomes a radical resource for those seeking honor to honor the holy amid the suffering and conflicts of real life. This may seem a bit dramatic. This may seem a little bit over the top to think about her as this defiant, radical prophet speaking truth to power, speaking, crying out to the Lord. If you don't hear that in her voice, if you don't hear that in the text, 
maybe it's because we're not in the same shoes that she is in. Maybe we're not in the shoes where we have to fear public shame or outcry or ostracization. We don't have to fear where will our future be, where will we live, where will we go. We don't have to fear that the government and the civic society and the social structure is against us. If we don't relate to her song as a cry for freedom, as a cry for hope, as a cry for justice, maybe we don't know her shoes that well. So I invite us this morning to try to put ourselves back in young Mary's shoes. When we hear her words again, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham, his descendants, forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Do you hear the voice of a scared girl there? I don't. Do you hear the voice of someone who fears her future? I don't. Do you hear someone who sees what it's like to be on the other side of the tracks, on the wrong side of the coin, on the, on the, in the space with no power, and yet she sees that the power is there and the presence of God? Because why? He sees her. He knows her, and he's blessed her with this baby boy. So why then is this, why was it banned? Throughout history, people, people on the margins, people who live in great despair, who live in great inequity, people who've lived under oppression, they have identified with her powerful poem. They've identified and been inspired to believe that God can see them that God can hear them, that God can liberate them, that God can bring justice to their plight. I told you that there were three different countries. Um, during British rule of India, the Magnificat was prohibited from being sung in church. The Brits, not some radical totalitarian country that we easily identify as the problem, right? They are, they we're like them. We're of them. We were, we were an offshoot from them, not the Brits. They outlawed the reading of the Magnificat in church. In 1980, Guatemala's government discovered that Mary's words about God's preferential love for the poor were too dangerous and revolutionary. The song had been, had crea been creating quite a stirring amongst Guatemala's impoverished masses, and Mary's words were inspiring the Guatemalan poor to believe that change was even possible for them. Thus, their government banned any public recitation of Mary's words. How threatening this young girl's poem was. Similarly, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, whose children all disappeared during the dirty war, placed the Magnificat's words on posters throughout the Capitol Plaza 
uh, in Argentina. Argentinian government outlawed any public display of Mary's song. These are just three examples of this. Now, again, if you don't naturally hear this anthem and this cry, maybe it's because we haven't necessarily been living in such a position, in such a community. Maybe we don't relate to it because we don't, well, relate to it. And I'm here to say, to be honest, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I don't know what it is like to live in such overt oppression. I don't live in a place where uh, our children have been snatched and taken. I don't live in a place where freedoms or even the freedom to just um, protest have been stripped away and taken from me. But there's other ways that we can soften her song. There's other ways that we can pass over and gloss over what she said about her son's work that God is doing through this baby. In 2005, there's a very, on Spotify, one of the most popular songs that you can, if you look up Magnificat, there's actually a song called Magnificat. It's sung by a Christian recording artist group, an a cappella group. They're popular around Christmas time, and they, have, they write nice little songs about Jesus, and it's lovely. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful song. Let me read the lyrics to you. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. That's the soprano section. They come in. And then people, the other parts, come in and start echoing. And eventually they get it layered where they're singing all the parts I'm about to read to you over and over. The next is glory be to God the Father and glory be God to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. Glory be to God. He has been mindful of his servant. He has been mindful of me. I will be blessed forever and ever. I will be blessed by the Lord. God alone is mighty. God alone is mighty. Our God alone has done great things. God alone is worthy and worthy. Holy is his name. That's the most often played um, song about the Magnificat on Spotify since 2005. Do you hear it? Do you feel it? Do you recognize the omission? It's only verses 46 through the first half of 49. That's only half of the psalm. That's only half of the hymn. You know we're a church that sings all the verses every time as much as often as possible, right? Where, where, where are the verses that he's performed mighty deeds with his arm? Where are the verses talking about how he scattered those who are proud, how he's brought down rulers from their thrones, how he's filled the hungry with good things but sent the rich away empty? He fulfilled his promises to Abraham, to his descendants forever. Maybe it wouldn't sell. I'm sure it would fit. You can always add another verse, right? Why? Why would this impoverished, unwed teen's poem cause such a stir that nations would be threatened, that masses would be inspired, and Christian artists might radically edit. When you have a good question, it's always good to turn to really smart people. And I'm going to turn to Dietrich Bonhoeffer to answer this question. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer recognized the revolutionary nature of Mary's song. In an Advent sermon in 1933, 
at the very beginning of what was now going to be called the Third Reich, he preached this, these words. The song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at least once, it is at, it is at once the most passionate and the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones over some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Let us be a people who remember Mary's song. Let us be a people who remember the plight, the, the plight of human nature and human condition and human structures of society and power and life. Let us be the people who remember that God's word is so powerful that it can inspire nations to cry out. It can inspire tribes to, to rise up. It can inspire people to hear and to believe and to confess their sins to God. It can, it can inspire people to turn to God for hope. It can inspire people to look for light in a world where we tend to just get over and accept the darkness. I don't know here in southern Pennsylvania if you have this New Jersey saying, but when I moved to New Jersey, I discovered that about every question in life could be answered with, it is what it is. Is that a PA thing too? Is that a Delco thing, Debbie? It is what it is. You know, that's what you do. You throw your hands up. It is what it is. I'd like it to be different. But I'm powerless to change it. It is what it is. But not so with Mary's song. Not so with this very first hymn about Jesus who comes. And now let's fast forward a little bit. Let's go through the fact that Jesus came. He lived. He walked. He, he lived a normal life until he started his ministry and then things got really intense and he called his friends and he called strangers and he called enemies and he called them together to be his disciples and he taught them and then he went towards Jerusalem and he really angered a lot of people for the right reasons and the wrong reasons and the, all the reasons in between and then they got rid of him because he was a troublemaker, right? And then he rose again and those friends and that band of followers, they were changed, they saw the power of God. They saw the power of thrones being brought down and the humble being raised up, the poor being fed, and the rich being shamed and humbled and turned away. They saw it. They participated in it. They preached it. They enacted it. And now this word was spreading because they were told to wait. Wait for what? God's spirit to be poured out on them so that they would have the resource for the power to do the impossible. Because Jesus' kingdom is the realization of that which is impossible. It's the reversal of it is what it is. So I'm going to move forward all the way to Acts 17, where Paul and Silas, they've been traveling through. They're now up in like Greece area and, 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 and Turkey. They've been traveling through this region and they've been bringing the gospel into towns. And after Paul and Silas passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And Paul went in as was his custom, 
And on three Sabbath days, three weeks in a row, he argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this is the Messiah Jesus who I am proclaiming to you. Now, as you know, when they went around, they went into towns and they did this exact same thing. Paul's call was to the Gentiles, but he first went to the Jewish people that were scattered, and he tried to bring the good news that the Messiah was here to them. And those who accepted it, the good news, kind of joined this new community. And then he would turn to the Gentiles in the community and show through great wonders and great teachings that Jesus was there for them too. It wasn't just the Hebrews' Messiah. It's gone global. That was happening town after town after town. But again, when you start doing something good, you know you're going to irritate some people who don't want you there. So some of the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some of the ruffians um, in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set Thessalonica in an uproar. And while they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. Jason was their host. They attacked Jason's house. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some brothers and sisters before the city authorities, shouting, these people have been turning the world upside down, and they've come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests, and they're all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor. The emperor, saying that there's another king, a king named Jesus. Now, let's just be honest. Were the scattered Jewish people big fans of the empire? Probably not. Were they big fans of Caesar? Not really. Were they just using him as leverage to get rid of someone they didn't like? Probably. But interestingly enough, they kind of said something that was true, didn't they? These people have been turning the world upside down, have come here also. I love that phrase. They've been turning the world upside down because that, friends, is why Jesus came. That's the result of Jesus' message. That's the result of the cross. That is the result of the good news that we have in Jesus, that the world as we know it, the world with oppression, the world with injustice, the world with pain and suffering and sin and demise does not last forever this way. And a kingdom is coming, a kingdom of light in darkness, a kingdom of hope in fear, a kingdom of, of forgiveness in, in brokenness, a kingdom of healing to sickness, a kingdom of peace to war. This is the, this is the message of Jesus. Years ago, there was a, a comedy, a movie where the, the lead actors decided in this comedy that, it was, that they wanted to pray and ask their blessings on their meal and their race ahead of them. And they wanted to pray to dear baby Jesus. And the, the reason is why people laughed at it, because they, they got what the, the comics were saying. In our world, we'd rather deal with Jesus as a cute little baby, not as a king. We'd rather see Jesus as a, as a non-threatening, cute little wiggly worm who just coos all night and no crying he makes. But no, Jesus, he came to bring hope and to bring love and to, to, to bring peace and even to bring down empires who don't want what he is about. 
The prophetic utterances from Mary were being felt across the empire, and this band of nobodies was causing such a stir, such a disruption that their message and existence was a threat to the rulers, was a threat to the thrones, was a threat to those who gained great wealth from the status quo. So this Christmas, let us not fall back into sweet baby Jesus and pristine Mary who's looking you know, like a stained glass window portrait, just peacefully. Thank you, Lord, for bringing me this baby. Let us remember her voice. Let us remember her voice, her words, about how she got to proclaim the sort of kingdom that Jesus came to bring, one of true peace, true healing, true joy. For unto us a child is born, a son has been given and the governments will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Prince of Peace and Everlasting Father. Let us call on this king. Let us greet him as the king that he is in our homes, in our time of worship, in our Christmas festivities. Let us not whitewash him and dumb him down into being just a cute baby Jesus. Let us listen anew and hear the words of everything sacred from a scared but fierce pregnant teen who truly believed that God was about to change everything through her baby. Amen? Lord, be with us this Christmas time, this Christmas season. Let us celebrate the light of Jesus that came and let us long for a world that isn't what it is as we see it, that isn't just resigned to pain and to suffering. But Lord, come and fix things, and make things new, and soften our hearts so that we might walk with you, and we might see you, and we might proclaim your goodness and be rabble-rousers just like Paul and Silas were. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you now.